the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Later this hour, we'll talk with Karen Wright Marsh. She's the author of Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. And this is a disparate group of individuals whose life stories are um, really quite remarkable. We'll talk about how she and her husband in a university setting have walked lots of college students through this process of looking at, evaluating, reading the lives of these uh, vintage saints and sinners, as she puts it. Well, congressional Republicans today unveiled the framework for their long-awaited tax reform plan, and that's in the shadow of the failed effort to modify Obamacare in any way. This plan simplifies the tax system. It cuts rates for businesses while it attempts to boost household incomes by nearly doubling the standard IRS deduction used by most Americans. Well, this has been a long time coming, the House Speaker Paul Ryan said at a Capitol Hill press conference earlier today where he also pointed out that Washington hasn't enacted major tax reform in roughly 30 years. Of course, Republicans, now that they hold the majority, haven't enacted any major legislative reform in however many months they've been there. So that's perhaps the, the backdrop that most people are considering at this point. Instead of a source of pride, our tax code has become a constant source of frustration. It's too big. It's too complicated. It's too expensive. Today, we are taking the next step to liberate America from our broken tax code, he went on to say. Well, the framework... It calls for increasing the standard deduction to $12,000 for individuals, 24000 for families, which essentially doubles the amount of personal income that is tax-free. Congressional Republicans describe the change as creating a larger zero-tax bracket. While the stakes are pretty high, Republicans a day earlier, as you recall, scrapped their latest effort to repeal and replace Obamacare. Now the legislative focus is going to shift to tax reform, which the president has been eager to tackle since taking office. Well, the broad stroke plan has um, was hammered out for months by a half dozen congressional Republicans and the, the uh, Trump administration officials known as the Big Six. Ooh, the Big Six. Uh, anyway, Ryan spoke uh, this afternoon after or rather this morning after congressional Republicans returned from a day trip to nearby Fort McNair in Maryland to discuss the proposal ahead of the president's afternoon speech in Indianapolis about the plan. He was joined by uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and about a half dozen other House and Senate Republicans, including Texas Representative Kevin Brady, who is the chairman of the tax writing House Ways and Means Committee. McConnell uh, praised Ryan for leading the effort and said the new plan is about getting America going and growing again. Well, the plan also uh, collapses the number of personal tax brackets from seven to three. By simplifying the system, most Americans would be able to uh, file their taxes on a postcard-sized document, a concept that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin touted uh, this past spring. Well, deductions for mortgage interest and charitable giving would remain, thankfully. But the plan seeks to end most other itemized deductions that can reduce how much affluent families pay. 
the plan also calls for uh, incentives to bring offshore investments back into the country, which the president said uh, yesterday would bring at least $2.5 trillion in overseas investment back. Good luck with that. However, any attempt at a bipartisan reform appeared to unravel within minutes of the uh, congressional Republicans' announcement of the plan. It's clear, said the uh, Richard Neal, Massachusetts representative, uh, the top Democrat on the House Ways and Means Committee. It's clear from this plan that when it comes to tax reform, Republicans will always put the wealthy first, he said. After more than a year of work, this tax plan would give uh, big tax cuts to the wealthiest Americans. Well, that's what you would expect the Democrats to say. And what the Republicans said is what you'd expect them to say. Once it's all penciled out and we've had an opportunity to actually see what it says, perhaps we'll better understand which of the two sides is true or perhaps something in the middle. The plan would seek to help families by uh, calling for an increased child tax credit and opening it to uh, families with higher incomes. The credit currently is $1,000 per child, also proposed as a new tax uh, tax credit rather of $500 to help pay for the care of the elderly and the sick who are uh, claimed as dependents by the taxpayer. The estate tax, which is paid by those with the um, multi-million dollar inheritances, like Clark, of course, would be eliminated, a boon for wealthy individuals who inherit businesses, investments, and real estate. Corporations, meanwhile, would see their top tax rate cut from 35 to 20%. New benefits would be given to... Uh, uh, to firms in which the profits double as the owner's uh, personal income, uh, that would pay, uh, rather, they would pay at uh, 25% rate, down from 39.6%. Uh, this creates a possible loophole for rich investors, lawyers, doctors, and others, but administration officials say they will design the measure to prevent any abuses. Uh, the plan would also impose a new one tax, lower uh, tax on um, corporate profits, uh, uh, that are stashed overseas and create a new tax structure for overseas business operations of U.S. companies. Well, the announcement was made today. The hard work begins tomorrow. So we'll continue to track this effort and see if uh, Republicans can succeed in this where they have failed thus far on Obamacare. Uh, we'll get back to that in just a moment. But I should mention that Obamacare, uh, its repeal isn't dead, according to House conservatives. Despite, and this is a quote uh, from yesterday, conservative House member uh, says, despite fake news claims that Republicans chance of repealing and replacing Obamacare in Saturday, that isn't necessarily true. Uh, go back and look at the name of the Obamacare reconciliation vehicle in 2010. Representative Thomas Macy, a Republican out of Kentucky, told reporters during their monthly conversation with conservatives event on Capitol Hill. He referred to how Democrats pushed through the health care law without a single Republican vote. Democrats combined education and health care, and they did student loan reform. They used some of the savings on the Obamacare tweaking that they did, Macy said. So you can absolutely do two things at once. It's not dead on September 30th, he said, of dismantling Obamacare. Well, on Saturday, however, time does run out for the Senate Republicans to use their current filibuster-blocking budgetary device to pass a bill to replace Obamacare with 50 votes. And that's what expires, not, uh, I suppose, the effort altogether. And it appears that um, if you require more than 50 votes, it seems like the way forward is uh, virtually blocked by Democrats who have already made it clear they do not intend to support any uh, GOP effort to modify, repeal or replace Obamacare. We'll continue to follow that story. Now, we're going to take a break here in a moment. When we come back, we're going to talk about the president who tried to sell his tax plan earlier today in a major uh, address to the uh, 
uh, to the country. And also five takeaways from the GOP tax framework that you might want to hang on to as you watch them uh, negotiate uh, moving forward. Also, the House Freedom Caucus members are talking tough on DACA. That's immigration reform. And we'll tell you more about that later this uh, uh, this hour as well. Karen Wright Marsh will be my next guest in the, well, this hour, I should say. She's the author of Vintage Saints and Sinners, of which we are all. 25, maybe not vintage, but Saints and Sinners. 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. We'll talk with her about that later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump promised drastic tax cuts today as he uh, touted Republicans' newly unveiled tax plan, arguing the push to rewrite the tax code would fuel America's economic comeback. Uh, again, quoting the president, these tax cuts are significant. Uh, he said during the speech at the uh, Farm Bureau building in Indianapolis, there never, uh, there's never been tax cuts like we're talking about, end quote. Well, Republicans uh, released the framework, as I mentioned, of their plan that was hammered out by House and Senate lawmakers in coordination with the Trump administration. The plan would simplify the tax, cut rates, and nearly double the standard deduction used by most Americans. Today, the announcement. Tomorrow, the work begins. A few takeaways from the GOP tax framework. Um, don't try too hard to calculate your tax. Hmm. Well, the framework offers plenty of specifics on tax rates and some deductions, but nowhere near enough for most people to figure out what they would actually pay. Among the missing details are the size of the child tax credit, the breaking uh, points where tax brackets kick in, changes in the earned income credit and the fate of tax breaks beyond the state and local tax deduction, and the mortgage interest and charitable deductions. So something to look for. Also, um, Key features of the tax plan skew the benefits toward upper income households. Those uh, include repeal of the its state tax, elimination of the alternative minimum tax, a 25 percent top rate on businesses that pay taxes on their owners, uh, individual returns and corporate tax deductions that will help wealthy shareholders. Now, the idea is those who hire um, will uh, have more uh, revenue to hire and, and stimulate the economy. Republicans left themselves an opening for a tax bracket above 35% that would apply to the very highest earners that would leave some in the top 1% worse off, especially in the high tax states such as New York, where the state and local tax deduction is uh, is valuable. But the GOP framing is quite populist, declaring that the plan isn't a tax cut for the wealthy and that their plan won't change who bears the tax burden. Uh, polls show that most Americans want higher, not lower taxes on the wealthy. Of course, those are those uh, who are not in that category. Also, the framework doesn't include a specific price tag, but it's likely to be a sizable tax cut overall, perhaps as much as $1.5 trillion over the next decade. That's more than 3% of projected revenue. Structuring the plan as a net tax, uh, tax cut rather, makes the political math easier because Republicans can create more winners than losers. They'll then argue that the tax cuts will spur enough economic growth that the tax plan will fully or partially pay for itself. Expect a debate over those economic models um, and whether or not they are correct. 
Also, Congress still has a long checklist ahead. First, the House and Senate have to adopt a budget resolution that will specify the maximum size of the tax cut over the next decade. It will also unlock the fast track procedures known as reconciliation under reconciliation, which we've all become much more familiar with of late. A subsequent tax bill can pass with a simple majority and not require votes from Democrats. Well, after the budget's done, the House and Senate will each write their own tax bills and advance them through committee. Expect the plans to diverge as legislation try to get the math to work and wrangle their voters. Uh, The House will be tricky because GOP members from New York, New Jersey, and California might resist the repeal of the state and local tax deduction. In the Senate, Republicans uh, have just a two-vote margin, meaning uh, each senator will have um, significant sway. Also, uh, the framework leaves out details on three crucial business taxation issues and how each is going to be resolved Um, And that will matter. First, the document calls for partial limits on corporations' ability to deduct interest and leaves open the question of what happens to non-corporate businesses. The answers matter to real estate, agriculture, private equity uh, industries, along with large portions of corporate America. On international taxes, the plan refers to rules that would allow... Uh, would uh, tax, rather, U.S. companies' foreign profits at a reduced rate and on a global basis. That sounds like the minimum tax on foreign income that many multinational companies oppose. And the taxation, rather, of so-called pass-through business Uh, which pay taxes on their owner's individual returns, still has a large blank space. The 25% rate in the framework creates an incentive to classify wage income as business profits. The framework refers to uh, rules that would prevent these tax avoidances, uh, but the uh, tax writing committees will have to figure them out. Taxpayers who use pass-throughs, as they're known, including car dealers, accountants, lawyers, and doctors, are an important part of the GOP base. So we'll see what happens with those. So those are some of the takeaways and things to watch as the debate begins, presumably in earnest. Members of the House Freedom Caucus, they're uh, staking out a pretty tough stance on immigration reform, including any effort to codify the now suspended Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program into law, also known as DACA. Uh, Representative Mo Brooks out of Alabama said, it's unlikely that I will vote for any kind of DACA absent a global fix for the border security problem at a a, uh, uh, conversations and conservatives event that took place uh, earlier this month on Capitol Hill. Brooks was adamant that Congress uh, not make the same mistake it made more than 30 years ago. He said he wouldn't support immigration amnesty without tough border security measures, citing the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, signed into law by then-President Ronald Reagan. Brooks said the 1986 law encouraged more foreigners to violate our laws based on the belief that we would not enforce the southern border. He said the amnesty turned 2 million to 3 million illegal immigrants at the time into between 10 to 20 million illegal immigrants today. The lawmaker from Alabama said he wants jobs to go to Americans rather than those in the country illegally. Meanwhile, Representative Tom Garrett out of Virginia, he agreed with Brooks. He also cited the 1986 law, characterizing it as a mistake. He said the border needs to be secured first before uh, any other immigration issue is dealt with. Another Republican congressman from uh, Congressman rather from Virginia, Representative Dave Bratt, he raised the issue of chain immigration. The number of recipients of former President uh, Obama's DACA executive amnesty is estimated at between seven hundred to eight hundred thousand, and that 
Bratt said if the uh, codification legislation included that their extended family, it would raise to uh, the number by uh, rather to four million. On the 5th of September, President Trump discontinued DACA, which was imposed by his predecessor, but gave Congress six months to come up with legislation to codify it if it wished to do so. He has since said that he would do something if they failed to do so. Well, challenger Roy Moore, he soundly defeated incumbent Luther Strange in Tuesday's runoff to those uh, to choose rather the Republican nominee in Alabama's U.S. Senate race. Uh, With all precincts reporting at about 11 p.m., Moore had 54.6 percent of the votes and Strange 45.4 percent. The Associated Press called the race when results from about half of the 2,286 precincts were in. Republican voters know who a person of principle is. Jenny Beth Martin, who's the co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots, told the Daily Signal in a pre-election interview predicting victory for Moore, former Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. Moore is going to face Democrat Doug Jones on the uh, 12th of December. It's a special election for the Senate seat vacated by Republican Jeff Sessions when he became attorney general in the Trump administration. The president had endorsed Strange, whom he considered loyal to his priorities, of course, an incumbent. And that's typically what uh, the uh, president would do from the beginning. He said of this from the beginning of this campaign, my priority has been serving the people of Alabama. Strange, the state's former attorney general, said in a written concession statement Uh, Tomorrow, I will go back to work with President Trump and do all that I can to advance his agenda over the next few months. In victory remarks in which he characteristically evoked faith in God, uh, former Justice Moore said, together we can make America great. We can support the president. Don't let anybody in the press think that because Trump supported my opponent, I do not support him and support his agenda. As long as it's constitutional, as long as it's it advances our society, our culture, our country, I will be supportive. But we have to return to the knowledge of God and the Constitution of the United States um, uh, to the United States Congress. Well, the runoff Tuesday was set up when Uh, Neither Strange nor Moore garnered 50 percent of the vote in a 10 candidate primary back in August. Moore got 40 percent to Strange's 33 percent, while Representative Mo Brooks of um, uh, again from Alabama finished third with 20 percent. Republicans are seeking to preserve their slim 52 seat majority in the 100 seat Senate. And this was uh, something of a blow to the president and uh, Mitch McConnell, both of whom invested a great deal in the success of Representative Strange, who failed to succeed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Karen Wright Marsh. She's the author of Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest points out that the word saint conjures up images of superstar Christians revered for their spectacular acts and otherworldly piety. But when we take a closer look at the lives of these spiritual heavyweights, we learn that they also experienced struggle, doubt, and heartache. Narrating her own pilgrimage through faith, my next guest, Karen Wright Marsh, she reveals some surprising lessons in everyday spirituality from these saints who challenge and inspire us with their honest faith. Well, Vintage Saints and Sinners comes out of um, more than 13 years of teaching university students. She hosted uh, Vintage Lunch and introduced the stories of uh, an older brother or sister of the faith. They read primary texts or their uh, words on a theme. 
And it was uh, it produced incredible conversations, uh, attempting to bring those conversations to the world to illuminate the energy that students find in ancient saints, stories and words is the motivation behind this um, fascinating book that highlights uh, these believers, um, those you want to emulate and those whose failures perhaps teach us more uh, than we'd like to admit. Well, Karen Wright Marsh is executive director and co-founder of Theological Horizons, a student-centered ministry that advances theological scholarship at the intersection of faith, thought, and life. She holds degrees in philosophy and linguistics from Wheaton College and the University of Virginia since its founding in 1991. She has served uh, Theological Horizons by leading the staff, directing daily programs, writing resources and curriculum, teaching weekly classes, speaking at retreats and campus ministries. She's also mentoring students in the Horizons Fellows Program. She lives at the Bonhoeffer House in Charlottesville, Virginia, with her husband, Charles Marsh, and their three children. She joins us today to talk about her book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Georgine. I'm thrilled to be with you and speaking with you today. Well, I've just briefly... Charlottesville. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. I briefly referenced uh, Vintage Saints and Sinners, um, origins coming out of a, a fellowship of university students uh, that you led for some 13 years and perhaps still lead. Tell us a little bit about uh, how that began and uh, about how it unfolded. Well, I, I love Fridays are the, the high point of my week. We continue these vintage lunches. It's been about 14 years now, so I'm preparing, let's see, in less than 48 hours, we'll have another one here. Huh. Um, but it all started when an undergraduate student named Susanna asked me if I would lead a Bible study for her and for, for some of her friends. And, you know, I just was aware that some of her friends um, had not grown up in the church. They didn't really have a lot of grounding in the Bible. And I just wondered if, if a Bible study might not put them off or intimidate them. So, and I didn't know about Susanna really where she was coming from with, in her faith. And so I suggested that we kind of take another look at figures from the Christian faith, look at their lives, look at their words, and kind of see how they lived the Christian life, how they found God, how God found them, and kind of take this gentle way in to the, to the Christian gospel and to the truth that living in the world as a Christian can mean. And so for all these years, my real intention and hope has been that any undergraduate, graduate student, any visitor who walks through the door can sit down with us. Uh, feel welcome. Pick up a, a reading. We I produce a handout, a reading every week, and um, read these words of Augustine or C.S. Lewis or Amanda Berry Smith, um, and just feel at home and feel curious. Um, kind of share this perspective of what what it looks like to live as a Christian, a faithful person of Christ in the world. So it's it's become um, far more than I'd imagined. We have mm. last week we had about seventy um, kids in the room, and that's a lot for lunch <laughs> because they are hungry. Um, but they just have so many wonderful insights, and I think that these stories and these words speak in surprising ways into their lives and their experiences even now. So the, that's, that's a little bit of what we do together here. The use of the word vintage might suggest that all of these individuals are ancient, but you have figures that are certainly from uh, uh, some distance, but others that are a little closer in terms of uh, the timeline that speak to the lives of those of us who are on a pilgrimage uh, through faith. Tell us some of the names that uh, that you feature in this uh, book, these 25 Christians who transformed your faith and have had an impact on so many others. Yes. 
Well, there are some old names that you would have, I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, St. Augustine, who was an early church saint, but a, a, a more recent saint would be Flannery O'Connor, the writer from Georgia, or A.W. Tozer, who was a preacher in Chicago. My grandmother loved A.W. Tozer. Um, Brother Lawrence was, was more of a um, 17th century, uh, 18th century uh, brother in Paris, France. Mother Teresa, who who died only recently. So I'm very generous, I think, with my word vintage, uh, and I'm pretty flexible with the word saint and sinner, too. So this is a book, I think, that pushes some boundaries, but I really wanted to represent, in so much as I could, this broad community of brothers and sisters in the faith who have so much who can, you know, that they can teach us. So really, my only requirement to be in the book was that the person was dead. <laughs> but uh, that's about it. Um, yeah, so it's been a really... And Sandy Lou Hamer um, is another one I mm-hmm. love, Dorothy Day. And, and people that we think we know. You know, St. Francis Assisi, we think of him as a lovely, gentle garden sculpture. But he was so much more than that, and such a tough and eccentric person. And your, so, your uh, university yeah. students... Um, find it interesting to look at the lives of those at some, again, some distance on the timeline and some uh, closer up. Uh, What do they learn from observing the lives of others who have walked through, uh, walked their faith through, through life uh, that they might not um, otherwise uh, appreciate? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that they learn is that these saints, the people that we call saints, the people we esteem as great spiritual leaders, as exemplars of Christian faith and faithfulness, when those people were 18 or 19 or 20, the ages of these undergrads, they many times did not look anything like saints. They were more clearly on the side of the sinners. And I think that is a huge encouragement to think that someone like C.S. Lewis was a convinced atheist um, at, at their age. He would have nothing. He, he declared that Christianity was for idiots. So Thomas Merton, another one, when he was at Columbia University, um, was, was, you know, really not um, interested in Christianity until he had a real spiritual transformational experience. So they learned that. And I think they learned, too, that, you know, life now feels scary and crazy and under overwhelming to many college students, to many of us. And they, they learned that there have been other times in history when there was fear, there was uncertainty, there was illness. Uh, Julian of Norwich uh, lived in England in a town where the, the Black Plague through, came through three different times in her lifetime. And so I think it gives them some perspective on their own fears and their own worries. And they also see that these people who live in scary or uncertain times, found God somehow in that. And God found them and, and graced them with hope and reassurance. And they were anxious, too. I mean, these saints and sinners were, um, you know, pretty, pretty... Um... Are you still with us? I'm not sure what happened, but uh, Clark can get on the case. Anyway, we are talking with Karen Wright Marsh. She is the author of Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. And as we mentioned, on the campus of the University of Virginia, uh, there's a building named Bonhoeffer House. Uh, It's owned by the uh, Karen and Charles Marsh, my guest and her husband. 
And on any given day, you're going to find students and faculty that are seeking discipleship, fellowship, mentoring in a welcoming space as part of their university of life. And one of the ongoing programs that uh, she, uh, Karen, who's the director of Theological Horizons, and her husband, who's a professor of religion at UVA, provide is a weekly gathering called Vintage. And uh, university students and others come, they meet... uh, um, the best writers of the Christian tradition from their uh, namesake Dietrich Bonhoeffer to Mother Teresa, Brother Lawrence, Mary Pike Lee. Uh, these vintages, as they're referred to, provide uh, a starting point to asking the deeply uh, the deep questions about faith and the life and work that comes out of it. So it's a fascinating collection of uh, men and women who have uh, walked the faith before us, all of them now deceased, some longer than others, but each one having something significant uh, to say to all of us. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation. We're having some challenge with the phone line, but we're hoping to get that taken care of uh, here shortly. The book, by the way, is published by InterVarsity Press. And again, my guest is Karen Wright Marsh. Um, with a foreword by Lauren Winner, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. Quick break. We'll be back with Karen Wright Marsh. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book Vintage Saints and Sinners. It introduces uh, readers to 25 brothers and sisters who challenge and inspire us with their honest faith. Among them, Soren Kierkegaard, Flannery O'Connor, Thomas Merton, uh, Fanny Lou Hamer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dorothy Day. Some you may know, others uh, you may think you know. Uh, to, here to talk with us about the book is Karen Wright Marsh. She is the author with a forward by Lauren Winner. I apologize for whatever our technical difficulty was, but I'm glad to have you back. Thank you so much. I missed you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's difficult to ask the question, but are there favorites among those 25 that are featured in the book? (laughs) Yeah, there are. I'll tell you. It kind of depends on the mood that I'm in. Yeah. Um, And and recently, I've thought, and many times my favorite is sort of connected to the things that are going on in the world around me, whether close or or far, I've been thinking a lot about Sophie Scholl these mm-hmm. days. She was she was only twelve years old when Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany, and as a university student at the University of Munich, she could see very clearly as a person of Christian faith that um, the Third Reich was evil. That Hitler was uh, devastation, and she and her brother and some friends got together and formed a secret um, dissenting little group called the White Rose. And they stood up to Hitler themselves on their own in, in secret. They were caught for their activities. They had been writing on walls and distributing leaflets. They stood up to Hitler. They were caught tragically, um, and they were put on trial before the Gestapo judge with no one to defend them, not a single witness. And this young Sophie Scholl, you know, 21 years old, stood up to the judge and she said, someone had to make a start. And what will my hmm. death matter if Hitler is defeated? And, you know, here in Charlottesville, we've had so much conflict and so much fear and so much confusion. It's been a very difficult time. So I've thought of Sophie very often, you know, as a, as a college student who looked at the world around her. She thought, you know, what, what is God calling me to? And she thought about, you know, faith is deeds, 
you know, as well as words. And she did something. So she's the one I think of of these days. But mm. yeah, I have many favorites. <laughs> you divide the book into two parts. One, mm-hmm. uh, focusing on those who were asking, another on those who were walking. And the story, uh, Sophie Sh- uh, Scholl is one of those who was walking. Another that you include that might be surprising until you read her story is the inclusion of Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, one mm. tends to think that you have to be highly educated in a position of significant influence, and yet her simple faith and her willingness to stand up and to speak out, and in her case, sing out, uh, inspired you and has inspired many others. Oh, very much. Do you know you know the story of Mrs. Hamer? I Georgine? do. Oh, my goodness. Well, my husband, Charles Marsh, is a, prof- a professor here at the University of Virginia, and he calls Fannie Lou Hamer his patron saint because he mm. does loves her witness, like you said, her strength, her hope. She sang uh, all the way through the civil rights movement. She took incredible risks to, to do what was right, and she believed that, you know, she was pursuing civil rights and justice in the name of Jesus, for, for Jesus. So I have no doubt that among the saints, she may be the greatest, um, because she, um, again, she has this passion for God and a passion for righteousness, and I have a world of respect for her. And she was quite a singer, too. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you tell her story uh, very well. Another figure uh, in the book is Dorothy Day. Now, some might be surprised. Why is she there with some of some <laughs> of her background? And yet there's a great deal we can learn from her life as a saint uh, and sinner, as are we all. Tell us a bit about Dorothy Day. Well, Dorothy Day is one of those saints for me that makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that saints, we think of saints in all kinds of ways, but many times they show us a way of living that makes us uncomfortable, whether they're kind of contemplative mystics um, or, um, in the case of Dorothy Day, a person who lived a life of radical generosity and hospitality. She founded the Catholic Worker Movement in New York City during the Great Depression, and her, her feeling and her conviction was every person you meet is the person of Christ. Every poor person who asks you for food who asks you for a dollar, that's Jesus asking you for a dollar. Of course you would give Jesus your last dollar. And, and one of her quotes that really makes me uncomfortable is that if you have two coats in your closet, then one of them belongs to a poor person. And um, I can tell you right now, I have more than one coat in my closet. And the students who um, meet Dorothy Day in these conversations, it really, it really shakes them up. You know, the ones who are going to be going into business or finance, um, you know, they have really important questions about, you know, how do I live my life faithfully? Do I have to give everything away? And um, Dorothy Day, with her act of mercy, you know, she asks that question with her very life. Yeah. And um, it's tough to answer. In your section on asking, uh, one of the features, uh, one of the individuals you feature is Henry Nowen, and I, correct me, please, if I mispronounce his name. Um, who had who worked very hard and uh, to recognize himself as being the beloved of God, and I, I loved his story because of his struggle and his resolve to uh, ultimately recognize who he was in Christ, because that was an issue that he struggled with for much of his adult life. Very bright, profound thinker, um, and yet he chose a simple life in order to truly discover his uh, his own identity. Yes. Henry Nowen's story, again, in the university context, 
but really for anyone, I think, who struggles with perfectionism and the, the pressure to achieve great things, the pressure for recognition. Um, Henry Nowen speaks to us, and he says, you know, you think that you are what you do. You think you are what you achieve. You think you are what other people think of you. But, you know, the truth of your existence is that you are the beloved of God, and that is who you are. And it takes a whole life to live into that and to believe that. And he, you know, he, again, he lived this conviction. He was a professor at Harvard and Yale. He, he read, wrote many books. People would stand in line to hear him uh, lecture. He's brilliant, um, had multiple degrees and PhDs, and yet he left the academic world and moved to a place, a community called L'Arche, and there's a whole worldwide network of these L'Arche communities where people with severe disabilities live with abled people together in community, and Henry Nowen went there, and served, his first year, he served a young man named Adam who could neither feed himself or move himself. Henry was his caretaker. And Adam, this young man, didn't care what Henry, what degrees Henry Nowen had, had no idea about his books, but knew that Henry uh, cared for him and loved him. And it was just a complete redefinition of what humanity was for Henry Nowen and, um, you know, what, how God sees us. As, as the beloved. So I, too, I love his work, mm-hmm. and I find his books very, very readable. So I, I recommend a Henry Allen to, to, to anyone who, um, who just would love to know more about what it means to be loved by God and to be loved by others and how to see themselves as a beloved person. Well, if you'd like a formal introduction, you can begin at, with the book Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. Karen Wright Marsh, thank you so much for taking the time to write for us what you experience on a weekly basis, and in fact, will experience tomorrow with your university students, and uh, appreciate your time today. It's my great pleasure. Blessings and thank you. Thank you so much. Again, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. Karen Wright Marsh is the author. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. Some fascinating, uh, challenging, and sometimes uncomfortable stories about those who have preceded us in the faith. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll wind our way through some of the top news stories of the day. So I hope you'll stay with us. Also want to challenge you, as you probably know by now, uh, October is Clergy Appreciation Month, Pastor Appreciation Month, whatever you want to call it. We're going to talk about a couple of surveys that might inform how we approach that uh, month of trying to encourage and making sure that those who serve among us are not only highly regarded and well taken care of, but that we are aware of some of the challenges they face and we might make it a bit more pleasant for them. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the devastation in Puerto Rico from Hurricane Maria is awful to behold, and the Trump administration will have to mobilize more resources. <clears throat> Excuse me. I just had a coughing fit, so it sounds like I'm sort of whimpering, but just trying to get the throat back. Um, one idea that's being floated is to suspend the law that raises the price of seaborne energy and food shipment to the island. We're talking about the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, better known as the Jones Act. And there's some there are two sides to this story. Some are suggesting that's a great idea to help mobilize aid that's needed. Others are saying, well, not so much. Well, the law requires that goods transported between the U.S. ports be shipped on vessels built, majority owned and manned by Americans. 
Well, think of it as a legally sanctioned shakedown for U.S. shipping interests, says um, the editorial board in The Wall Street Journal. One way to think about it. Well, Puerto Ricans pay dearly for this protection, which uh, reduces competition. It raises costs. A 2012 Federal Reserve Bank of New York report said that the Jones Act helps explain why household and commercial goods cost roughly double to ship from the East Coast to Puerto Rico than to nearby Dominican Republic or Jamaica. Food and energy costs are far higher than on the mainland. Well, the presidents of both parties have suspended the Jones Act to alleviate fuel shortages, to enlist the aid of uh, cheaper foreign flagged ships during previous emergencies. George W. Bush did it after Hurricane Katrina. Barack Obama did so after Superstorm Sandy. And the Trump administration followed after Hurricanes Harvey and Irma ripped through Texas and Florida in August and September. Well, the aftermath of Hurricane Maria is an even more urgent emergency, as we've been uh, discussing. This was, of course, a Category 4 storm. It shut down electricity, destroyed crops, has residents scrambling to obtain food and potable, uh, potable water. Many of the islands, 3.4 million residents, may not have power restored for weeks. Some are suggesting months. At least 10 people have died, and rescue operations will be needed for months to come. Allowing Puerto Ricans to import cheaper petroleum equipment in bulk, at least temporarily, will certainly help. The Department of Homeland Security said Monday, however, that it won't issue a Jones Act waiver for the territory. Uh, spokesman David Lappin explained in an email that there are ins- or there are sufficient numbers of U.S. flagged vessels to move commodities to Puerto Rico. The Department of Homeland Security argues that under U.S. law, the agency can't ask for a waiver unless there's a national defense threat and there aren't enough Jones Act compliant ships to carry goods. Well, that may or may not be the... Uh, uh, the reading of the law by DHS, but the Department of Defense has fewer legal constraints. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis could simply find a Jones Act waiver is necessary in the interest of national defense. In other words, they're busy elsewhere. At least that's according to uh, Representative Nydia Velasquez, uh, who's requested a year-long suspension for the territory. So the administration will have uh, bipartisan support for one. Well, the permanent solution is to repeal the law, one of the worst uh, on the American books. Senator John McCain has tried for years to do just that, but is stymied by opposition from lobbies like the American Maritime Partnership and coastal politicians like Duncan Hunter. President Trump is starting to um, take political heat for being more attentive to the to hurricane damage in Texas and Florida than Puerto Rico and his administration's um, uh, disparate Jones Act treatment won't help counter that perception. He's going to travel to Puerto Rico next Tuesday. We'll see what happens. Salim Firth, who is a Ph.D., points out that Puerto Rico appears to have avoided defaulting on the bond payment that was due on Tuesday, another issue surrounding the tiny island. The Economist argued this week that one way or another, the U.S. government will end up bailing out Puerto Rico. But the editorial supports the conclusion with two factual errors. So in an effort to meet the needs that uh, are the result of the uh, hurricane, do we bail out the, the uh, territory or do we leave things alone? Well, again, from The Economist, first, the editorial says that Puerto Rico's government owes $72 billion in debt, and that's with a B, billion. The majority of that debt is owed not by the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, but by public corporations and specific government authorities. Contrary to The Economist's assertion, if those debts go unpaid, the result will be that bank uh, that bondholders lose money and public utilities go into receivership, which may finally result in much needed reforms and reinvestment. Well, the bondholders can't force tax increases. 
Well, secondly, the editorial suggests that because the U.S. bankruptcy code does not apply to states and territories, there's no way for them to default on their loans. Several U.S. states, however, in the territory of Florida have defaulted before in 1841, you know, a little while back. Defaults, not bailouts, are the proper fail-safe for irresponsible lending. If Congress follows the economists' uh, logic, lenders rather, We'll come to expect bailouts. We'll be happy uh, to enable the state and local governments to write checks. They might uh, have no plans to honor with the expectation that someone will, the federal government. Well, Puerto Rico's public bonds were issued within specified legal frameworks. Those who bought and sold the bonds can work out the insolvencies under the rules they agreed to when they entered the contract. So the... Uh, uh, So it's being argued changing the bankruptcy rules at this juncture would set a precedent for tilting the law in favor of political entities. And it's uh, certainly tempting given the current situation there. But in the absence of a bailout, Puerto Rico's utilities would be forced to deal directly with their creditors, as the electric company PREPA has done for the past few years. And those internal reforms are uh, painful for insiders as well. They're good for for customers. Uh, They would improve the utilities long term viability but may have long-term impacts that we are not quite prepared to um, to deal with. Anyway, an interesting uh, observation, uh, given the, the challenge that uh, Puerto Rico currently faces trying to get out from under the devastation that occurred following the storm. Two views on how to address some of their major problems. Well, former First Lady Michelle Obama, she leveled harsh criticism today at women who voted uh, against Hillary Clinton and for President Trump. The presumption is if you didn't vote for Hillary, you must have voted for Trump, suggesting they voted against their own interests. In other words, only a woman can represent their interests, and only Hillary Clinton, who was the only woman on the ballot, represented the interests of all women. She said uh, any woman who voted against Hillary Clinton voted against their own voice, as if women have only one voice. Uh, She told the audience during a talk at a marketing conference in Boston, she went on to suggest that female voters for Trump were just going with the pack. In other words, they were too stupid to have thought for themselves. It doesn't say much about Hillary and everybody trying to worry about what it means for Hillary and uh, no, no, no. What does this mean for us as women, she went on to say, as reported in The Washington Times, uh, that we at those uh, two uh, looked at those two candidates as women. And many of us said he's better for me. His voice is more true to me. To me, that just says you don't like your voice. You just like um like the thing you're told to like. So in other words, if you voted for someone other than Hillary, you are a fool who is led by others and aren't capable of thinking for yourself. Now, it's interesting to me, this is another example of this notion that diversity really matters. We're richer and uh, the world around us is a better place when there is diversity, unless you're talking about actual diversity that isn't superficial, but the diversity of ideas. There were lots of women on the left who did not vote for Hillary for reasons that were different from women on the right, but neither voted for her for legitimate and valid reasons. And to be dictated to by Michelle Obama as to what we should have done because Hillary Clinton wears skirts and Donald Trump doesn't is a bit un- insulting. She was taking a swipe at a large swath of the population, of According to an exit poll, 41 percent of women voted for Trump in November, 41 percent. Obama campaigned for Clinton during the 2016 election, was speaking as a part of 
Inbound, a sales and marketing conference. When talking directly about Trump, she uh, took different tone. We want him to be successful. He was elected, she said, referring to her and former President Barack Obama's hopes for the current president. When you've been in this position, you have a different perspective. I think it's probably fair to say you want the country to succeed. You hope the leader uh, does what's in the best interest of the country. Uh, But that may or may not reflect what the individual holding that office chooses to do. Anyway, her former president husband, though, has been uh, stepping up his criticism of Trump lately, including taking to Facebook to blast the decision to roll back his DACA executive action for so-called dreamers. I don't even know why we hold elections. I think we should just count up how many women are there in the country and just cast a vote for all women. How many African-Americans are in the country and cast a vote for all African-Americans? Because clearly half of us, so whether you're women or African-American, don't have a mind of our own that can think clearly about what's in our best interest, what reflects our priorities, what's important to us. Uh, Others are fully prepared to do that for us. I don't know about you, but I prefer to cast my own ballot, whether that's for Hillary or for Trump or for Obama, whoever happens to be on the ballot. I think I might be mistaken, but I think I might be capable of thinking for myself and to define for myself whose voice I prefer my own to others, whose voice I want to um, embrace and where I want to cast my ballot. 16 minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the question is being asked, are Christian movies going blue? Well, the movie Generational Sins is in theaters on October the 6th via freestyle digital media. It's rated PG-13, contains 32 profanities, not unusual, except that Sins is a faith-based movie. Hmm. Says the director, um, the writer-director, we don't want to play within the constraints of Christian movie making. He's the, uh, again, writer and director, Spencer Fulmer of Generational Sins. Call them hard faith films, says the writer-director, who is uh, trademarking the phrase and whose banner, uh, Third Brother Films, has um, more such movies in the works, including one based on Johnny Cash's The Beast in Me. Well, the faith-based uh, Dove Foundation, which stamps its uh, seal of approval on family-friendly movies, recently named Sins, Uh, It's first recommendation in its new category for viewers age 18 and up. So faith-based movies that are a little saltier or more blue, as they say, than we've uh, come to to, uh, expect. The movie says Dove President Susie Sammons has not only cautionary elements in it, but positive ones. There's an overt godly message with Christian values. Well, Dove has uh, reviewed 12,000 movies since its founding in 1991, and about 750,000 people use the nonprofit organization's recommendations. Um, They note that films like Passion of the Christ and Hacksaw Ridge are examples of films that might also warrant Dove's new 18-plus recommendation for reasons other than uh, dropping expletive bombs in the middle of them. We are not only targeting faith-based moviegoers, says Fulmer, the director and writer. We're also going after, um, let's see, they call them Christers, people who only go to church for Christmas and Easter, hence the name Christers. Uh, If we tell stories of adults struggling with faith, adults will run toward them. So we're working hard on creating this new genre. Uh, But some critics are crying foul. Movie Guide, which recommends films based on their Christian messaging, 
wrote that movies don't need to be filled with foul language, explicit sex, drug use, and the like to reach out to people that aren't walking with God. Movie Guide also accuses Fulmer of marketing his movie based on the unusually large number of cuss words it contains. Recent hits in the genre like God's Not Dead franchise, which has grossed more than $80 million in the U.S., have been PG rated uh, with no swearing in the film. Fulmer thought, uh, though, embraces the controversy. There's been a backlash to generational sins, but there are secular and faith-based films. Um, and we believe there should be the third option, he says. We don't want to play within the constraints of the traditional faith-based community. So it will be interesting to see how this uh, how this goes. In fact, we know that uh, some movie makers deliberately, and these are, chi- are films that are marketed to young people, include expletives because it gives them a, a better rating from their vantage point, and that's likely to give them uh, broader viewership. And I don't know if that's the uh, the thinking behind this, but uh, just be aware that there's a new genre. You may or may not go to these um, these systems that uh, will tell you, like Dove, uh, will rate these films based on sort of a family-friendly metric. Um, but this is a new genre that we're uh, now going to see, faith-based films that also include um, content that you might have thought you were escaping. So heads up on that. You might need to look a little deeper into some of the movies that are out. Well, once again, the sexual revolution just keeps on giving. All it takes is a simple STD test and antibiotic treatment to prevent this enormous heartache. That's what the director of the CDC's Division of STD Prevention of STDs uh, says that's um, a past uh, from individual to individual. Sexually transmitted diseases surged to a record high in the United States last year with more than 2 million cases. I won't mention the names. We just know what they are. This was the highest number ever, said the annual Sexually Transmitted Disease Surveillance Report that was released today by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Most of the new cases, 1.6 million in 2016, involved um, three particular uh, that infect both men and women. Uh, Gonorrhea increased among men and women last year, but the steepest rise was among men, uh, the report said. Uh, Again, the sexual revolution, the gift that just keeps on giving from one generation to the next. The National Football League is now plunged into politics as players throughout the sport kneel for the national anthem and President Trump continues to rebuke them publicly for having done so. Undoubtedly, the situation has left uh, fans and non-fans of the league conflicted or angry or perhaps uh, struggling to understand what's at the heart of it all. We know it started out with one message, but that has since been obscured somewhat. This fiasco may, however, open the eyes of the public to a serious and generally unchecked issue. Billionaire NFL owners sponging enormous enormous amounts of money from taxpayers through crony capitalist schemes. Well, that's a quote from Jarrett Stepman. Uh, the fact is that a business that raked in $14 billion in revenue in 2016 is heavily subsidized by local, state, and federal money based on dubious claims about stimulating the economy. The problem is rampant, Stepman suggests. One report on Watchdog.com or rather .org, said that over the past two decades, the NFL has raked in about $7 billion of taxpayer money to spend on stadium renovation and building. Another study from the Brookings Institution showed that federal taxpayers have subsidized the construction of 36 stadiums at a cost of $3.2 billion since 2000. Michael Sargent, an infrastructure expert, wrote about how sports teams use specially crafted tax breaks to get the public to finance their massive projects. Now, we may enjoy the games, but may not be aware of the cost, at least in terms of tax dollars. 
tax-exempt municipal bonds are typically reserved for public use projects such as bridges, water systems, and other infrastructure, Sargent wrote in the Daily Signal. Yet, because of a loophole in the tax code, private-use stadiums can take advantage of this tax break and have, have done so prolifically. In fact, only a handful of NFL and other major league teams use privately financed venues to host their games. It would seem after sinking enormous investments into sports franchises, cities would reap serious financial benefits in return. In fact, don't we just assume that? But this apparently isn't the case at all. Research from George Mason University has shown that not only do communities gain almost no economic benefits from subsidized sports teams, but some findings indicate harmful effects of sports on per capita income, wage and salary disbursements, and wages per job. A recently released polls show national anthem protests are deeply unpopular with the American people. But polls also show that the taxpayer funding of sports is also widely disliked, if, under, if known and understood. When likely voters in Nevada, for example, were asked if they favored or opposed using $500 million in taxpayer dollars to fund a stadium for the Oakland Raiders to move to Las Vegas, they overwhelmingly said no. According to the local media there, uh, Rasmussen reports polls, 60 percent of Nevada voters opposed the funding and only 28 percent supported it. Well, given the massive uh, disconnect over national anthem kneeling and rampant politicization of once unifying sport, a football, perhaps now Americans will turn a more skeptical eye toward how their sports teams rely on public money and actually uh, do something about it. Not very likely, but unless the loophole is done away with. There are some in Congress who've taken notice, uh, says uh, Matt Gertz, who's a Republican out of Florida, representative. In America, if you want to play sports, you're free to do so. If you want to protest, you're free to do so. He said in a speech on Tuesday, uh, but you should do so on your own time and on your own dime. Well, recent bipartisan legislation on Capitol Hill is aimed to strip federal funding from sports teams. A bill sponsored by Senators James Lankford of Oklahoma and Cory Booker of New Jersey, a Republican and a Democrat, would prevent teams from using municipal bonds that are exempt from federal taxes. Steve Russell, representative, introduced a similar bill in the House. Langford said in a statement in June, and I'm quoting, the federal government is responsible for a lot of important functions, but financing sports stadiums for multi-millions, uh, sometimes billion-dollar franchises is definitely not one of them. Well, maybe it shouldn't be one of them, but it certainly is at this point. Using billions of federal taxpayer dollars for the subsidization of private stadiums uh, when we have real infrastructure needs in our country is not a good way to prioritize a limited amount of funds. I'm mostly thrilled that a member of Congress acknowledged that there are limited funds. Well, the movement has picked up steam in recent weeks, according to the uh, Daily Caller. On Tuesday, Gertz became the lead sponsor of legislation that would end the tax-exempt status of professional sports leagues. We'll see what happens as the sport has been politicized and um, the subsidies are becoming more widely known and understood. 31 minutes after 5, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may know, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and it's an opportunity for us to highlight the tremendous sacrifice and gift uh, that our pastors and teachers are in our congregations. And I wanted to reference a couple of uh, columns that uh, appeared in Christianity Today having to do with pastors. Uh, the first was written by Justin Barrett, um, 
He asked the question, does your pastor need a friend? And he cites a study that reveals relational ministry can leave the inner circle somewhat empty, and I would replace the word lonely. Uh, Barrett points out that his pastor recently asked him, why is it so hard for people to see pastors as friends and not just pastors? We tend to put people on a pedestal, and of course, we don't want to be exposed as being less than, so sometimes we keep our distance, not so much because we don't want to be nearer to them, but we don't want them to be nearer to us. In one respect, he goes on, the question caught me by surprise. He's part of a large pastoral staff of a big and vibrant church with a reputation for being highly relational. How can someone whose life revolves around forming caring relationships have a lack of friendship? I bring this up because as we consider our pastors perhaps more deeply than we do the rest of the year, these are questions we might want to consider in our own congregation. What do we assume to be the case and how might we better serve those who serve us? He goes on to write that it turns out my pastor is far from alone. In a recent study, my team discovered that most relational style pastors and missionaries average fewer personal relationships than the typical adult. And an alarming number have too few close uh, confidants to support them in their life and calling. Now, though it may be tempting to simply encourage ministers to seek more relationships, many of them are faced with a trade off between quality and quantity. Those with a large number of very intimate relationships have a smaller overall social network, and those who form lots of relationships have have, um, impoverished inner circles, failing to get the right balance corresponds with burnout and ministry ineffectiveness. Hmm. The research is rooted in the idea that humans naturally have a certain number of personal relationships to which they gravitate, known as Dunbar's number, because it was first discovered by British um, evolutionary anthropologist Robin Dunbar. The number of genuinely personal relationships that we can actively maintain averages around 150 people, but varies broadly. Some people can handle more, some less, but 150 seems to be the human norm. Now, that's staggering to me to have 150. 50 people in what you would refer to as relationships. There are varying degrees of how you would relate to those individuals. But he goes on to point out that, interestingly, Dunbar and colleagues note that 150 people is both the approximate size of typical small-scale human villages and about the number of people who can live or work together without needing power structures to enforce cooperation. The group is small enough that social pressures can keep people in line. Well, within those 150 active personal relationships are rings of ever greater intimacy and trust. Around 50 of those 150 are close friends and family members whom we interact with a little more often and trust a little more. Within those 50 is another ring of approximately 15 very close friends and family members. We turn to these 15 in times of trouble or would uh, drop what we're doing to help them. Then there is the inner circle of best friends. These five people are the keepers of our darkest secrets, those that we uh, count on through thick and thin, who would be happy to see every day if we could. Interestingly, around five people is also the largest number of people we can be in a conversation with, which everyone feels comfortable to contribute. The rings 5, 15, 50, and 150 are typical, but they may not be the best sizes for everyone. Why can't we simply have as many friends as we would like? Well, research by Dunbar, once again, and colleagues suggest that we're limited by physical proximity, brain power, hours in the day for relationships to become emotionally intimate. Physical touch is our go-to method, and these are, of course, uh, appropriate uh, physical touch. And then the study goes on from there. 
A little later, he writes that I first learned of this research while I was teaching at the University of Oxford and Robin Dunbar joined the faculty. One day I asked him, what happens if someone deliberately tries to add more people to the social network? We don't know, he said. People don't typically wake up in the morning and say, I think I'll make a new friend today. But I had served in young life with my wife, he writes. We did wake up on some days and think, I'm going to try to make a new friend today. And we encouraged our volunteer leaders to do likewise, to help introduce kids to Christ. Many relationship ministries or ministers actively try to make and maintain new personal relationships without losing the old ones. Is that even possible? He said he has his doubts, and not only based upon the research, he remembered the sometimes crushing emotional burden he felt and having to constantly expand the social network and push beyond 150 or whatever the natural relationship capacity was. Well, he goes on to talk about uh, the, um, uh, the numbers. And then he concludes, our research suggests then that most ministers and relational style ministries fall into two groups. The larger group has spent a lot of time cultivating very intimate relationships with 20 to 30 people, often on their ministry team at the expense of a broader social network. If the ministry demands forming genuine personal relationships for the sake of sharing the gospel or making discipleship, these ministers have little relational capacity available for those new relationships. Their time and emotional energy are already spent. The smaller group of ministers is relatively lonely and isolated with few really close, intimate relationships to turn to for support. And yet they may have lots of shallower relationships, possibly those required by the demands of a relational ministry. I offer implications of this research tentatively just because some traits tend to go together does not mean one is causing the other. That said, I encourage churches and other ministries. He goes on to write. Again, we're talking about uh, Justin Barrett. Uh, he encourages churches and other ministries to consider the shape and size of their leaders' social network and how demands placed upon uh, those leaders could lead to distortions at uh, at least 13 very good friends and family members. Four to six best friends appear to be good targets. Pressure to form and maintain too many meaningful personal relationships with ministry team members, top financial supporters, and other strategic individuals may fill ministers' relational capacity to the point that they cannot wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to make a new friend for Jesus. Uh, the result could be ministers uh, who feel ineffective or even lonely. They may have uh, too few friends in their lives who see them as good friends instead of ministers or ministry colleagues. Perhaps your pastor needs a friend. I'm not sure how you orchestrate that, but it is something to think about uh, as we approach a season in which we focus our attention on those who serve in leadership in the church. And we're talking about senior or executive pastors and those who serve alongside them, maybe elders or maybe you have a board, whatever the structure is in the church. Thinking about how are these individuals doing? Are we providing them with sufficient time, for example, to develop uh, relationships outside of the role of serving in leadership in the church? And how can we nurture those individuals who serve in a way uh, that gives them the uh, uh, access to relationship that they need to thrive personally and not just as the leader of our congregation. Now, in just a moment, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I wanted to reflect on a survey. This also appeared in Christianity Today that said being a pastor's wife is good for faith, but bad for friendship. Expectations have shifted. The wife of a pastor is no longer expected to be the individual who plays the organ and oversees the uh, uh, the Sunday school, but spouses still feel the weight of church drama and the impact it has on them. Now, again, as we approach 
uh, October, which is Clergy or Pastor Appreciation Month, we remember that most of our pastors are teens. So we're going to talk about uh, this survey that indicates that today's generation of pastors, while different from previous generations, they face challenges that need to be thought of as well. So we'll get into that in just a few moments. We'll also tell you what's coming up um, for the remainder of the week on the program um, as we... uh, as we're already approaching Thursday, I can hardly believe that we're that far into the week. Anyway, we'll get into that in just a few moments. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a survey being taken about uh, pastor's wives and whether or not uh, being a pastor's wife is a role that is nurturing or perhaps not so much. Well, the uh, Kate uh, Shellnut wrote the piece in Christianity Today, and she points out that while today's generation of pastor's wives fill a different role than the dressed-up, casserole-toting caricature that came before them, and that is, of course, a caricature, but they still feel the pressures of being married to ministry. Of course, they're not married to ministry. They're married to their husbands who are in ministry. But sometimes the two things bleed together and we misunderstand or mischaracterize their role. About one in four Protestant pastor spouses in the United States work a full-time job outside the church, while about one in five holds a paid position at the church alongside their spouse, according to a Lifeway Research survey that was released earlier this week. Younger spouses express more frustration than older ones over how their position impacts their friendships and fiancés. And finances, rather. About seven out of ten pastor spouses say that they have a few friends to confide in. That's a problem. And this may be more true for pastors' wives than it is for um, the, for pastors. But uh, they say they have few, uh, few people to confide in. Uh, Lifeway researchers found more than half don't feel enough emotional connection to others or worry about being betrayed by people at church. Now, this is a sad state of affairs. Now, the survey clearly is about pastors' wives. There, I know there are some pastors who have husbands, and um, this survey does not address those whose wives are serving in the ministry. But nonetheless, it is instructive to help us think through, as uh, Pastor Appreciation Month approaches, how can we minister to and create an environment, not just for the pastor, but for the ones who serve alongside uh, the pastor In this case, uh, we're talking about pastors' wives. Over the decades of my ministry, says uh, Kay Warren, who advised Lifeway on its questionnaire, um, she says, uh, over the decades of my ministry, the role of women married to pastors, as well as of women in general, has radically evolved. Uh, In the preface of her book on being a pastor's wife, Sacred Privilege, which came out in May, she points out that from behind the scenes, Mostly in the home pastor's wives of my mother's generation to women co-pastoring or serving as the senior pastor, as well as everything in between, the role of the pastor's wife has not remained static. Warren, she's the wife of Saddleback Church Pastor Rick Warren, dismissed old advice on tuna casserole preparation or demure fashions as uh, laughable compared to the real world stressors experienced on this side of ministry. Uh, Younger wives, about 96% of respondents um, were female, indicated more challenges in building relationships, facing church conflict, dealing with the feeling of living in a fishbowl, according to Lifeway. Now, I pause for a moment and wonder if that applies to your pastor's wife. And again, I understand that this doesn't apply to every church if your uh, pastor is a female, but we're talking specifically here for a survey that Lifeway conducted on pastor's wives. 
Um, does your wife uh, have difficulty building, or your pastor's wife, have difficulty building relationships, facing church conflict, dealing with feelings of living in a fishbowl? And how might um, the way these women are approached, how might that improve? Uh, Joanna Brialt wrote for Christianity Today Women about the inevitable distance between pastor's wives and the rest of the congregation. Of course, the pastor is an endearing figure. He's an individual who brings God's word and is uh, generally always uh, in the, the limelight. And sometimes the pastor's wife, as uh, an appendage, finds that her position is um, somewhat more challenging. Uh, Joanna Brialt writes that when pastor's wives walk up, the conversation goes quiet. Our remarks are often met with flattering but awkward deference. Our relationships still have a degree of distance. It is the pastor's wife effect. Sometimes these chasms are self-inflicted, the result of having been hurt in the past and keeping ourselves safely aloof. Sometimes they are the result of an unhealthy church culture that puts our husbands and families on pedestals. But sometimes they are the result of congregants not making peace with the fact that their pastor's wife is just a regular person. Mm. It is definitely a challenge in the role of being the burden bearer. You wonder if there's anyone to bear your burdens, says Darina Williamson, whose husband leads Strong Tower Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Like Williamson and Baralt. Uh, More than half of the pastor's spouses polled by Lifeway had experienced church conflicts such as personal attacks, 51 percent, or resistance to their spouse's uh, leadership, 72 percent. A third of Protestant pastor's spouses are under the age of 45. Most have kids at home, both factors that lead them to be more sensitive to gossip, gossip rather, and betrayal as church life inevitably spills over into family life, impacting, of course, the couple and their children. Overall, uh, the column goes on to point out that pastor spouses see their family's ministry involvement as a good thing. 90% say it has had a positive effect, according to Lifeway. More than half commit to regular family time at least once a week to avoid burnout and rest together. And while some spouses suffer anxiety, depression, and resentment tied to the pressures of being married to a pastor, most report being generally happy and satisfied with their lives. They view themselves as happier than their peers at 74% and see their work as valuable to the ministry at 88%. The vast majority, 85% of pastors' spouses, agree that their church takes good care of us, though well over half, 61%, say one paycheck is not enough. About two-thirds worry about retirement in particular. Do you have an arrangement for your pastor and uh, and their retirement? Well, more pastor spouses now work outside the home out of necessity or choice um, or in the church. 53% are employed part-time or full-time, mostly in the private sector. Regardless of whether they work at the church or not, pastor spouses say they too feel a call to ministry, which helps them see value in their role. About a quarter say they share a calling with their spouse. Half say they have a, diff- a, a, a different calling and 9% have a seminary degree of their own. Well, Lifeway's survey of American pastor spouses was sponsored by the North American Mission Board, uh, Houston's First Baptist Church, and Houston's physician, Dr. Richard Dawkins, was conducted uh, this summer using a random sample uh, from a mailing list of the U.S. Protest- of all U.S. Protestant churches. But it does provide at least some things to consider as uh, clergy appreciation or pastor appreciation month, month rather approaches, and how can we serve those who serve us better, whether that's the pastor himself, herself, or the spouse.
something to think about. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Jonathan McKee. Jonathan McKee is the author of The Teen's Guide to Social Media and Mobile Devices, 21 Tips to Wise Posting in an Insecure World. Now, not only do we uh, run the risk of posting things we wish we never had, um, but there's also insecurity in the uh, social media world and uh, certainly in technology altogether. So this is a teen's guide to social media, but don't be, um, don't be surprised to find that there's a lot that we adults can learn uh, from this wise counsel as well. So Jonathan McKee will be my guest uh, tomorrow on the program. And then on Friday, we anticipate uh, lightening up and just having a bit of fun on a fun Friday afternoon. So I hope you can join us for that. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.